You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi, I'm Steph Tiller. On our final episode for 2023, David Rowe speaks to economist, lawyer and author Misha Zielinski about his new novel, The Sun Will Rise, which is inspired by his experience on the ground covering Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They discuss the overarching theme of the book and its characters, as well as the message Misha hopes people will take away. They also discuss the latest developments in the war, the risk of war fatigue and why democracies must continue to provide support to Ukraine. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm David Rowe. Thanks for joining me. With me today is Misha Zelinsky. Misha is an economist, lawyer and author. He's a former Assistant National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union and more recently has been a regular writer for the Australian Financial Review, which has included long stints in Ukraine over the past couple of years covering the war. For his efforts, he is personally sanctioned by the Putin regime, a badge of honour if ever there was one. And I've got to say he's one of the most compelling columnists around at the moment, writing mainly on security and international politics. And his writings on global authoritarianism are crystal clear and full of insights. So catch up with those if you haven't already. If that's not enough, he's now a novelist as well, having just released The Sun Will Rise, a novel about Ukraine and inspired by his experiences there. Misha, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you, mate. Thanks so much for having me. So let's start with why a novel. Just talk a bit about why, well, about your experiences over there and why you felt it made sense to tell this aspect of it through fiction. Well, it's a really good question. It's certainly the question my publishers asked me when I came up with the idea of a a fiction book, given that I'm a, known, I suppose, for non-fiction work, mm. certainly not a fiction writer. Um, look, I'm a public policy professional, David, uh, so I like to believe that facts, figures, logic, reason and argument carry the day and there's plenty of good logic, reason and argument about what we're seeing in Ukraine and why uh, what that, you know, that evil and illegal invasion by Vladimir Putin, why it's so important. But if it was ever true that those things carried the day in public domain and in argument, I think those days, sadly, are long gone. And people, as we know, uh, be it in politics or be it with current events, connect with issues on an emotional basis. And so what I've tried to do is now it's, I guess, technically characterised as fiction, the sum will rise, but it's very much what I would call fact-based fiction. It's drawn on my experiences covering the war for the Australian Financial Review, actual events from the war itself, and also the complex history between Russia and Ukraine. I've tried to give that a narrative structure because we know that people understand the world through stories. Like That's our history as humanity. And so try to overlay an, a, a character set, a narrative arc to explain the really critical stakes of this conflict, the things that I saw, the awful and horrendous things that I saw that we've all seen on our screens, not just from you know, my reporting, but a lot of outstanding reporting from other journalists and really the way that Ukrainians have told their story through various channels, including through the president, Vladimir Zelensky. But the ability to tell this good and evil story, and that's what's going on there in Ukraine, this is a good versus evil story and we need to understand it and I'm hoping that people perhaps can access the truth of what we're seeing inside of Ukraine in a different way. 20 months into the war, uh, you were journalist, Dave, you know that it can be hard to maintain people's interest based on the news cycle and the world's very complicated. But what's happening in Ukraine is so critical 
to the future of the world that I'm hoping that people might find a, a different way to connect. And then having read my book, they might think, okay, I understand the stakes of this conflict now. Mm, yeah, fascinating. And did you find as you were writing that you were starting to bring out some aspects to this that you couldn't quite capture in, uh, you know, in fact-based columns or, or reportage? I mean, w w were you actually sort of discovering as you as you went um, that, that sort of power of storytelling to, to, to no, bring absolutely. out? Absolutely. And yeah, I've drawn on things that I saw firsthand and yeah, the, the sort of critical, you know, the, the tension point of this novel is it's centered around, it's not really a war novel, it's an occupation story. So it's set, set in occupied Ukraine and the invading armies roll into town and they capture the nuclear power plant. Now, that happened right at the beginning of the war in Ukraine. The Russians, would you believe, it sounds mental to say it, fired upon Europe's largest nuclear power plant, right? Yeah. <laughs> One of the biggest in the world. They shot at it with tanks and mm -hmm. artillery, which to me is just wild. And uh, then once they got control of it, they said to the workers there, look, you guys are going to keep working here and you're going to work for us. And if you don't, this thing's going to blow up. And frankly, we don't really care because it's your land. And I thought, man, what a, what a diabolical set of circumstances to find yourself in. I spoke to some of the workers inside that plant and within the union. And my background, as you mentioned, is a union leader. So I sort of thought to myself, okay, that is a, just an awful situation where how do you prioritise people's competing interests there because clearly you want to maintain safety that makes sense so it what's how does one resist safely in that situation how did what is collaborating in that situation and how do you make sure that you're prioritizing the right things and and quite rightly resisting an illegal occupation and yeah when you look at what authoritarian regimes do they don't just destroy democratic institutions they destroy free political institutions of which trade unions are one of those and so I thought, what an interesting way through this story that you could have a, a, a union being the kind of focal point of organising against the struggle with the stake set against a nuclear power plant if it detonates everybody um, would clearly perish and it'd be a lot of damage and destruction in the context of this broader war. And I thought that's a really interesting way of doing it. And, and things that I saw myself and things that are still happening right now, that nuclear power plant is still controlled by the Russians and is mined extensively by the Russians. Uh, so it, it's a troubling set of facts. And again, I hope people can connect with that, that actual reality through the, the story that I've crafted. I mean, it's a great premise for escalating tension. Things can literally blow up. It's, uh, right. it's, a, it's a great starting point. Just tell us a little, little bit more about what readers can expect. What, um, who's the hero? Who's the villain without giving the story away? Just tell us a bit more. <laughs> well, the heroes are the Ukrainians, uh, but it's based around a character called Oksana Shevchenko. She's the young union leader so, again, you know, drawing on my experience having uh, been a union leader in Australia, but I thought, look, I come from a big blokey trade union, the Australian Workers Union, historically very blue collar, uh, regional and male in its, uh, in its footprint. And I thought it's an interesting, again, a struggle for the character herself saying, how do I manage my union brother and sisters um, at the same time as dealing with this broader struggle against the occupying Russian army and they're led by a guy by the name of Lieutenant General Mikhailovich. And so he's a young, hotshot uh, officer of the Russian army trying to cut his teeth. And he, like many Russians, has internalized this false, toxic narrative of Russian revanchism and saying, well, we're going to restore the Soviet Union. Wasn't it so great? And so I try to dig into that a bit as well to explain that, you know, those actually lived in the Soviet Union know it wasn't great. He was, uh, you know, too young really to remember it so he remembers the stories that he's told or the lies that he's told by the regime and so 
think, again, that's trying to set those stakes and understanding that there, whilst the good and evil struggles are very clear and the invasion didn't just start in February of 2022, it started in 2014 with the illegal occupation, annexation of Crimea and then the war in Donbass. But this goes back hundreds of years. And so I've tried to dig into this complex relationship between two countries that are different with different people, different cultures, but are situated next to one another and have a, a history that that matters in this context. Certainly not the way Vladimir Putin tells it, but uh, in an important way uh, that it is relevant, relevant to the struggle and, and influences how people react in situations. And so, again, with the stakes set in that way, I've tried to explain why things cannot necessarily be cut and dry for everyone, uh, including... Uh, the Russian soldiers that are in that town uh, executing these orders that we know are horrendous, uh, but at the same time, much as in real life, have been sent on false, false pretenses. So, yeah. so I mean, you've, so you've drawn on your own experiences. Is Oksana based on a particular person, a compilation of people? How did that work? I, I would describe her as a compilation of people. I, I've sort of told this joke before, but um, it, a lot of my Ukrainian friends have read it and said, am I Oksana? And I right, said, well, yeah. Yeah, you all can't be Oksana. Uh, but one of the, the things that happened, and writing – it's different for everybody, but it's a bit of an organic process. And uh, the the character of Oksana came to me through, I guess, many of the young women leaders that I met as I was going around Ukraine, particularly in the early months of the war, the organising effort to stand up the country. Uh, the place was very chaotic, as you might expect. Uh, a lot of uh, men had been conscripted to go fight, and so a lot of the civic uh, and business leaders were, were women doing a lot of the organising work um, and political work and communication efforts, and not just wasn't just the president, there's a lot of the uh, women politicians and women leaders uh, right across Ukraine. And there's a, a cohort of young, dynamic Ukrainians coming through, uh, men and women. But uh, yeah, Oksana was an amalgam of those very dynamic women that I came across uh, just in my travels. And I thought, again, for the reason I said, it's just an interesting person to lead that struggle and has her own, has her own uh, difficulties overcome uh, for herself uh, in amongst that, that broader struggle against the you know, the Russian army. Yeah, yeah. Um, was it, I mean, plenty of us are uh, perpetual and frustrated fiction writers, my, myself included. Did you <laughs> find it um, easy, difficult to pick up the skill of, you know, just creating characters, you know, uh, bringing them to life, all those sorts of things? How, how easy or difficult was that? Um, look, it's different for everybody. For me, I wrote it very quickly. It sort of just came out, uh, out of the pen um, over a week. Would you believe it was on the... I just wow. come out of Ukraine and I was uh, on the coast of France and so Basque country. And so I was kind of living the Hemingway fantasy. Uh, it's a short book and I deliberately kept it short because I think people's attention spans being what they are. I think you've got to be able to tell a story in a way that uh, is compelling, but in the time that people have, and you've got to give people what they want and try to meet them as they are. And so yeah, the shortness of it may have influenced how quick it was to write. But uh, to your point around frustrated writers, David, um, look, a lot of journalists and a lot of people probably think they've got a good fiction book in them. Not many people actually have a good fiction book in them, so we'll find out whether or not, yeah, which category <laughs> I sit in. I've written one. I'll leave it up to other people to decide whether or not it's good. It's obviously had, um, yeah, and I'm very grateful to everybody who's given it a very lovely endorsements. Uh, people like Wayne Swan, Tony Abbott, uh, Chris Minns, Premier, launched a book for me um, last week. And also uh, Ukraine's ambassadors endorsed it and a bunch of other Ukrainian politicians and figures around the world. So, And it's had great feedback. But uh, I will obviously let others make up their mind. The, the, the thing about fiction, David, is 
look, a non-fiction book, a big non-fiction polemic, and we'd all like to write that ourselves if we're thinkers. Um, a lot of people buy it. Not many people will read it, and I'll tell you it was great. Uh, with fiction, people might buy it. They may very well read it, and they're very, very comfortable telling you that they didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I'm, I'm, yeah, at peace with that. But I, I hope it just gets people thinking about it. It doesn't need to be the great piece of literature, um, you know, although you know, I'd love it to be. But uh, for me, it's a really, it, it's a device, and the device is about engaging people with the stakes of this conflict because um, it's so important to Australia's future, the world's future. But Australia is deeply invested in the outcome here, and that's why I want people to care. Yeah, I, I did notice the uh, the touch of resonance of Hemingway in the title, the um, the sun will rise. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to know that you might have been channeling the uh, old papa. Well, funny you should say it. So like, the, the title people said, oh well, is it is it is it channeling uh, uh, the sun also rises? It's actually not. Um, although I can't say that it didn't creep into my subconscious. Not a deliberate choice. The sun will rise is obviously a hopeful message, but drawing out the colours of the Ukrainian flag, yellow and blue, is really the, the motif there. There's a lot of a lot of the focus in this book is around peaceful resistance and the use of imagery because you know, what do dictators hate? They don't just hate political organising, they don't just hate electoral organising, they also hate images. Uh, images can be very powerful. They can, they can tell stories in a way that uh, you know, long-winded speeches can't. And idea, an idea is more powerful than anything. And there's a reason why Winnie the Pooh's banned in uh, in China, and it's not because uh, it's some kind of subversive uh, story. It's a kids' cartoon. It's because Xi Jinping has got a glass drawer and doesn't like to be compared to Winnie the Pooh, and people then use it as a way to to sledge him, right? And so that glass drawer element that they have is what I've tried to explore through this device of colours, and and you, you, we dig into that quite a bit in the story, and um, I think. It's one of the things that people seem to be responding to when they read it. Yeah, yeah. Let's move from fiction to fact, grim as uh, they might be. Um, your assessment of Ukraine at the moment, the conflict, I mean, if you were going to give us a snapshot, where do you see things as being up to? Well, it's precarious and unfortunately as courageous and brutal as the fighting is on the eastern and southern fronts of Ukraine, and it is brutal, make no mistake, you're talking about somewhere between 400 to maybe approaching 600,000 deaths and, and injuries, so total casualties, huge numbers. This is like World War I-style fighting. It's just extraordinary. And the Russians have sustained the vast majority of that, but the Ukrainians, being a small country, the, the, the pain on them is very, very real. So that's the fighting is brutal and it's still happening, though not uh, in, in the same sort of sweeping fashion as it's getting cold there um, and you know, the snows on the ground makes it hard to fight, as we know. But uh, it's political. The, the decision-making and the success of Ukraine is completely and utterly linked to what happens in uh, democratic capitals around the world. Really important right now. Zelensky's in Washington right now begging United States politicians to not cut off aid to Ukraine, to not cut out the legs from underneath Ukraine. And it's extraordinary to me that we would be in this situation where Ukrainians are saying, we'll do the fighting, we'll do the dying, We'll defeat not just one of the world's most odious regimes, one of history's most odious and disgraceful regimes in Vladimir Putin's Russia, guilty of all manner of war crimes, rapes, tortures, uh, abductions of children, civilian murdering, you know, firing rockets even overnight into civilian um, uh, buildings. Horrendous, horrendous regime. And they're essentially prepared to do it just as with the weapons that they're asking for. That's the deal of the century. That deal 
is extraordinary, even just on that basis. But then if you build it out a little further, you say, okay, what are the stakes here? Is this an Eastern European conflict of one country trying to resist another or are the stakes something bigger? Well, I'd say the stakes are something bigger. And we're going to look back on this and say, are we two years into something darker, something larger, something more global in scope and scale, something approaching World War Three? Is that where we're headed? I hope not. But that is what history will look back and tell us. Or is this the moment where the dictators failed, where the dictators club realised that uh, you can't invade small countries because you don't like them and you can't have uh, dictatorships destroy democracies because they feel like it and change borders by uh, conquest. But it's in the balance. And for a country like Australia, we cannot survive. I want to stress this. Australia cannot survive as a country of 25 million people in a neighbourhood where uh, it's relatively peaceful but not all our neighbours share our values, we can't have a world where might is right because it won't be our might or our right. We need a world of rules. We need a world where democracies stick together to resist authoritarians. And so that's the stakes here. And so if those are the stakes and the only request is send us weapons, they're not saying to us come and fight alongside us, though you know, perhaps others may argue differently, but they're not asking for that. They're saying, just give us the weapons. And so the idea that we wouldn't do that with Russia really teetering is is just bonkers to me. And it's a deal that may we may look back on and wish we had taken. I'd like to come back to Australia in a moment, but just on the US and I suppose the, the West more widely, Zelensky doesn't seem to have been uh, having much joy over there in Washington. Presumably, he has been making those arguments that they are not just fighting for themselves; they are actually fighting for, for you know, for all of us, for uh, for global freedom and fighting against global authoritarianism. And yet, it's failing to resonate, and we're getting some crappy politics with the you know the attachment of uh, requirements about the southern border and these sorts of things. I mean, what what are your reflections on where things are at, starting with the US? I mean, is it? I mean, if those arguments aren't working at the moment, uh, where are we left? Look, I think the, the, the great difficulty here is um, in US politics, there's always been an isolationist streak. This has existed throughout their policy. They didn't want to get involved in World War One. They really try to avoid World War II. Um, and then where they have perhaps got out over their skis uh, in Vietnam or, yeah, you could even look at the reaction to 9-11 and Afghanistan and Iraq, then there's like always this, well, look at what we did when we got it wrong. And so the the kind of isolationist streak has always been there. And you've now got a popular streak emerging through Donald Trump. And unfortunately, it's a very big tail, but it is wagging the Republican establishment dog. And there's still enough votes in the House and the Senate to get this done. But uh, it really comes back to defining the stakes. If you don't believe that the stakes are that critical, and also if you don't believe that the United States has a critical role, perhaps the most critical role to play, I think if you know, it's using an American football analogy, uh, the United States is the quarterback of team democracy. Australia is like a receiver. We can play our role. But if the quarterback blows his brains out, it is over. And so that's the great fear here as we head into 2024 is it, can the United States, can the people of goodwill uh, resist uh, the forces that are, are much darker and represented by Donald Trump and others? And so that's the challenge. Um, and I, I hope that there are enough people of goodwill in that Senator Lord knows I disagree with many people, um, but I, yeah, I disagree with Mitch McConnell's policies. I'm a Labor person, as you know, but I think when it comes to questions of foreign policy of this nature, they are so existential that we have to come together. And you know, Tony Abbott endorsed my book. Again, a guy I never would have voted for, but a person who I respect 
for standing up um, for Australians, for Ukrainians, and and he did that during the MH17 when it was shot down. The Malaysian airline was shot down by Russian-backed separatists using Russian weapons, and he called that out and called them on and turned public opinion on that. So these things are not partisan, in my opinion, but people do treat them on a partisan basis, and they're just missing. But to link, to look at these issues through a political domestic lens and politics is part of it. Democracies are free and we make our own decisions and we should, politicians should respond to people, but you also need to make the arguments. And if you don't make the arguments, then people say, well, why does it matter? And I think that's where it's gotten to a little bit in US politics. Right. So uh, as a member of the team, uh, Australia, whether we're, I don't know, the tight end or somewhere like so I, I probably shouldn't join. <laughs> you I, I probably shouldn't position. jump on board with um, sporting analogies because I'm hopeless on sport. Um, <laughs> but whoever we are on that team, um, how do you assess where we're going? I mean, is I mean, do you, do you share that sense that some have that we... You know, we, we we pony up when it's expected of us, but we're, we're uh, we we could be uh, leaning in a little bit more or leading a little bit more. What's your view on that? Well, I think we've done a lot, but I think we can always do more, and it's the ongoing commitment. I know right now the Ukrainians are asking for coal to get themselves through the winter because the Russians are attacking the electricity supplies and distribution of Ukraine. We should absolutely send that coal. That's humanitarian aid that we should absolutely send. We've got plenty of coal. Let's send it over there. But in terms of weapons, we've sent 120 Bushmasters, give or take. Not all of them would necessarily be in country. That's only 10% of our supplies. What are they for, David? What are our weapons for? Now, again, we've got to defend Australia. Of course we need to defend Australia. But near as I can tell, nobody's saying there's an immediate existential urgent military threat to Australia. And if there is, David, we need to get off this podcast right now, head down to the local factory and start making tanks together because that's where, that's where things are at. That's not the situation as we understand it. So the best way to make sure that dictators stay at home, other dictators that might one day decide to invade Australia and or you know start a war in an Indo-Pacific somehow, the best way to teach bad guys to stay in the box is for Ukraine to win. That is, and so if you look at it through those that lens, you say, right, the best way to make sure we never have to use an Australian tank in Australia or anywhere near Australia is to use them in Ukraine to help the Ukrainians defeat Vladimir Putin's Russia. The lesson here is the critical piece. Whilst what happens to Ukrainians is absolutely vital for Ukrainians, the the, the stakes of it are what are the lessons that we draw from it. Can you win wars of conquest? Does in the end democratic unity fracture and collapse and you can just outweigh them? You know, 20 months, you know, well, 20 months ain't that long, really, is it? Most wars tend to last years if not into decades sometimes and so uh, if you're uh, thinking on a strategic basis yeah, I can wait 24 months of sanctions and then and then we'll have what we need and so Australia can't exist in a world like that cannot exist in a world like that and so therefore we should be sending our weapons not as an act of charity as an act of national security and we can make more we make Bushmasters and Hawkeyes in Bendigo uh, in Australia well, let's make more. I support that clearly. But the idea we're holding on to them, what are we holding on to them for? Cruise around the outback? You know, take Betty's two to the box social? I don't know what the hell these things are for if they have not for defending Australia's interests. I'm not talking about this as a, well, we need to make a commitment to Ukraine, and we have. But we also need to commit to Australia's core national interests. And defeating Vladimir Putin's Russia and Ukraine is core business for Australia's interests. Sure. Militarily, obviously, HIMARS uh, made a big difference. 
Are the Ukrainians at the point where they need another game changer to uh, to get them uh, on the right course? So that the and and I suppose what what happens if the international support starts to dry up, starts to tail off? Where do you see it going? Well, if we don't give Ukrainians new weapons, they'll lose. Uh, they need. Uh, they need air defences to stop their cities being shelled into oblivion by and shot into oblivion by Russian missiles and drones and Iranian drones and what have you. Uh, but right now, the problem with the military support we've given, and this is just the royal way across every country, is that you end up doing the things that you said you wouldn't do, but you do them too late for them to have made a difference. And HIMARS came and they made a huge difference, but they didn't come for months and months and months. Attackums, a longer-range form of missiles, finally made their way in there. They're making a big difference in hitting Russian logistical positions and changing the, 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 the dynamic on the battlefront. But at the same time, everyone said, oh, now, mind you, Ukraine have made quite substantial gains through enormously hev- heavily fortified Russian positions in the south and southeast. And everyone listening to this podcast will know that driving out a heavily dug-in army in a defensive position is quite literally the hardest thing you can do. Everyone's saying, oh, why is it not going faster? Well... Not only is that already hard to do, but we're also asking Ukrainians to do it with that aerial superiority. They don't have jets, right? Now, right now, Ukrainians are being trained to fly F-16s, but the F-16s are still not in theatre. When we, So by the time there are F-16s in the air in Ukraine, it'll be two years since Russia started its main invasion of Ukraine in 2022. And like you so say, you go, what are we doing? And so there's this... Belief amongst the Ukrainians, and when you look at the facts, it's hard to argue otherwise, they've been given just enough not to lose. And again, I think part of the difficulty for us all has been, right, what is our defined scope of victory, i.e., what are the stakes here? The stakes are, as I've explained them, existential for democracies to my mind. So once you've defined the stakes, then what does victory look like? Well, it looks like the territorial or strategic defeat of Vladimir Putin inside of Ukraine to the extent that Ukraine is satisfied where they're happy to, you know, sue for peace or what, it'd be up to the Ukrainians, but essentially teaching Vladimir Putin and others that you invade somewhere, you lose. So that's got to be the defined victory. So once you define those two things, what you then give makes more sense. But because we're working backwards going, oh, what can we give them? What should we give them? What's safe to give them? You'll never know what to give. Because it's an all big tactical decision based on, well, I'm not too sure, I'm not too sure. And um, yeah, define the stakes, define victory, it makes it far easier to decide what to give. And in those circumstances, we should be giving a hell of a lot more and a lot quicker. Yeah, okay. To to wrap up, I suppose I want to just zoom out a little bit. Misha, sorry, I'm mixing my uh, metaphors a bit there. But um, uh, you've touched on this a little bit with the example of, I suppose, sort of public opinion uh, fatigue uh, becoming a risk. What do we need to do? Uh, What are we not doing properly when it comes to the strategic narrative uh, across democratic countries in outlining to public opinion the historic confrontation, whatever you want to call it, that is going on between authoritarian and democratic uh, systems at the moment. What are we actually, what what would you like people to fully sort of grasp is actually uh, going on in the world right now uh, at a, you know, at that strategic narrative level uh, that will 
I suppose, awaken a, a, a proper, appropriate level of support for things like uh, the, you know, Ukraine's uh, just uh, fight against the um, uh, the tyranny of Putin. So I think it's about ideology. People get very uncomfortable when you say ideology, but all values are ideology. And you need to get into the values and ideological contests with these uh, regimes. Because if you get it, I don't believe in sort of anything goes moral relativism where, well, look, you know, we're democratic and they're authoritarian and, you know, there's different ways of running things. Well, no, our way of doing things is better. Now, we need to argue that it's better. We need to demonstrate that it's better. So democracies, I think, have got a lot of work to do at home. And that's a separate argument that we talk about. I think that the failure of democracies at home is driving a lot of dysfunction, not just in democracies themselves, but internationally. But basically, after 1991, Soviet Union collapses, the Berlin Wall comes down in 1989, we all dusted our hands, walked off the field, said, job done, we won, the end. And we stopped making the arguments. If you don't argue why your system is better and you don't proudly make that argument and, and, and reinforce that argument in every way, not just with facts and figures but through story, that's what my book tries to be, I call it an ideological narrative, proudly so. People say, oh, what's the difference between that and propaganda? Well, propaganda is an argument trying to mask a, a falsehood. Sure. Um, you know, it is a lie presented in a compelling fashion. Well, democracy is not a lie. You know, I, I'm very fond of JFK. You know, he said uh, you know, we don't have to keep our people behind a wall to keep them in, right? Look at the flow of people, people still flowing to free and open societies when they can have the choice. Uh, look at Vladimir Putin. No one... He's desperate to hold on to Ukraine, but if you if Russia and Vladimir Putin's version of Russia was so compelling, well, why are the Ukrainians so desperate to become more European and Western? Every time a country has a choice, they lean west, not east. Why? Because it's the flow of humanity. Because people want to be free. And so, what I'd say to anyone wondering about the stakes, democracy, it might feel like it. This is not the natural state of things. We're down to twenty-one democracies. It's been a, in a twenty-year decline petrol decline because we've not been making the arguments they're getting fewer and fewer so it might feel that well this is just how it is no it's not how it is you actually have to defend them and reinvigorate them and make the argument and it's not quite as dark as it was during world war ii world war ii we got down to 12 democracies as london was under the wave of the blitz uh, of the uh, Nazi Luftwaffe, uh, that it was very, very dark time, but it's getting pretty dark now too. And if we don't fight for democracy, no one's coming to fight for us. And it, democracy is but a blip in human history. Free and open societies are but a blip in human history. And so uh, the alternative is much darker. And if we don't protect them, we'll regret them when they're gone. Yeah, it's a great answer, a fascinating answer. I, I think it was one of your columns recently that made the point that because there are some imperfections in democracies and we're, you know, we're seeing those in fairly excruciating ways at the moment, there's this increasing attitude, and I, and I, I worry that it's among younger generations myself that, uh, well, I mean, you know, we're imperfect, they're imperfect, we're all imperfect, so hey, let's not draw any real kind of distinct moral distinction Correct. between them. I think that's a real risk. Oddly, it's a kind of a, a reversal of the, the, the Trumpian kind of cynicism that appeals to people, which is like, yeah, I'm a crook, I'm an asshole, 
Um, but you know, we're, we're all crooks and assholes. It's just that I'm more honest about it, uh, whereas everyone else is a fraud and you know pretends right. that they're morally righteous, and that seems to appeal to um, to certain types of voters. It's this weird. Well, if you claim to be the good guys, if you claim to be the good guys, the standards higher, right? So we do need to live up to our values. And for young people, I can understand why they feel disenfranchised. Young, passionate progressives who feel locked out of society, who feel they can't buy a home, who can't get a job, who just feel that they're not getting forward forward momentum in life. And you're seeing this uh, not just in left-wing politics, you're seeing it in far-right politics. A lot of young people voting, look at you know, what's happened in the Netherlands. That victory was built on young voters with a far-right nationalist party, anti-migration party. You look at the far-right election in Argentina. Uh, if politics fails young people, then they're going to look for alternatives. Like that's that's a like that's not surprising. So I say democracy is a necessary but not sufficient condition. It needs to also deliver for people in meaningful ways. We didn't win the Cold War, Dave, because people read uh, Jonathan Locke and Jefferson and Karl Marx and went, you know what, on the on the arguments, I think you were going with Locke. No, West Berlin was fundamentally better than East Berlin, which was very shitty. And and now the difficulty that we have is that um, authoritarian capitalism makes a middle-class lifestyle in Beijing look deceptively similar to a middle-class lifestyle in Sydney. The subtleties are hard to spot but very important uh, when you, know, you want to say something that you disagree with and you get a knock on the door. And the point I'd make to young people is, go, look, we've got to fix things and I'm with them. right? I get all the, all the, the, the things that make them angry. But finding common cause with Osama bin Laden who has a critique of US foreign policy and saying, oh, well, that's my critique of foreign policy, therefore I agree with Osama bin Laden. Well, let's just be clear what his objectives are. Destroy and replace democracy, not with something better, but with uh, authoritarian, theocratic uh, oppression. And I make the point to people that you know, feel frustrated, there are no rainbow flags in Beijing, in Moscow, or in Gaza. And so it's very important to remember that this protesting that we can do is a privilege, not a right. Uh, it's a right that we afford ourselves, but globally, it's a privilege that we must defend. And yeah, finding common cause with your enemies uh, is not wise, given you've got to look at what their objectives are and, and just ask yourself, is that what I want to stand alongside of those people? And the person that I think is the most, you know, perhaps one of the most inspirational leaders in history certainly 20th centuries nelson mandela now when he wanted to bring down the apartheid regime he made the view that this regime is so bankrupt so morally corrupted that armed resistance is the only way that was the conclusion he made as a young man and rational in some ways you'd say okay i get it right we have to fight our way out ends up going to prison for 27 years on trumped up charges we know and, and he's locked away for a very long time now what he could have done in that situation is become more radicalised, more embittered, yet somehow that process turned him into perhaps the greatest human that ever lived, came more charitable to his opponents and convinced them from prison to let him out, end apartheid, and he goes on to become the first democratically elected leader, black leader of a free South Africa. Now, if that's not a lesson for all of us, including for young, passionate people who want actual change, um, then I can't think, you know, I possibly can't think of a better one. And so look to Mandela, don't look to Bin Laden, would be my argument to young people. Um, that totally, and, totally. And, and change is hard. <laughs> you know, it is yeah. hard, but uh, that's what makes it more beautiful and sweet.
No, sure, sure. No, great. Um, I'm, yeah, role models, pick your role models. And I, uh, personally, I've got to say the Osama bin Laden rehabilitation did take me rather by surprise. Mission- well, as I said, mate, look, man, I'm getting a little bit older, but I didn't even need the kids to explain that one to me. I was like, all right, I think I understand what's going on here. And it was just, that's a wild moment. But it's a, it's, that is a warning shot, though. Like, like yeah, totally. Young people feeling so disenfranchised that, you know, they can find alignment with Osama bin Laden. Like, it's a little bit of the triumph of what I call mm-hmm. know nothing know it alls, um, which is, you know, the worst kind of person. Like, the other thing I'd say is not just role modeling, but uh, don't take foreign policy advice from someone who, uh, you know, a month ago was selling health uh, products on, on, on Instagram. Um, try to listen to people that know something. Yeah. I can't imagine who you mean, but yeah, yeah. All right, look, Mitra, I'll uh, I'll have to wrap it up. But um, look, that's been fantastic. Thank you for joining us. The um, uh, I look forward to finishing uh, the sun will rise, and I look forward to. Well, I won't spoil it for you, mate. <laughs> good, good. And I uh, I look forward to continuing to read your columns. I always gain some insights from them. So thanks for coming on the podcast, and hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon. Oh, well, thank you so much for your generosity. The sun will rise. Available anywhere you get your books, and uh, I really hope everyone can read it and connect with the truth of the struggle, and then go out and help Ukraine. Thanks, Misha. Thanks, mate. Next up, Alex Bristow speaks to Dr. Arzan Tarapur, South Asia Research Scholar at Stanford University's Asia-Pacific Research Centre and Senior Fellow at ASPE. They talk about the upcoming Quad Summit in India in 2024, the topics likely to be discussed, and how the diplomatic partnership has evolved over time. Arzan, it's great to have you back on the ASPE podcast. Um, I think you've been... uh traveling around Canberra and hearing all sorts of views. You're based in the States now, I think, but um, a familiar Aussie accent. Uh, and um, we've just actually come from a fantastic discussion uh, over uh, grabbing a coffee with Justin Bassey, where we were talking about sort of deterrence in the 1930s and all sorts. We were joking we should have had the uh, microphone on during that one, but we're, we're going to be more disciplined for this chat, and I think we'll probably focus a little bit more. From Persia to Chamberlain to Putin. It was. It was, it was a pretty, pretty wide-ranging chat. It's good to be back in Canberra. This is one of the few places where you can have chats like that. Yeah, we, we, it would have made a novel podcast, that's for sure. <laughs> we'll try and do that one next time, but for now I'm under orders. We're going to be uh, a bit more focused on the upcoming uh, quad summit um, uh, so uh, assuming this is going to air in December we don't know quite when the summit's going to be but um, uh, we do know it's going to be in India um, so I was wondering what your uh, what your view is on what we might expect from this forthcoming summit what from India's perspective they might be hoping to sort of uh, use the opportunity of having the leaders convening on their turf uh, any thoughts on the forthcoming summit so look First of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be back in Canberra, great to be back at Aspie. Uh, and I think uh, it's a good time to be talking about these issues because there is going to be a summit probably at the end of January in New Delhi. Uh, and I think the bottom line takeaway for me is that it's going to be yet another incremental development of what the Quad does. The sense I get from the past year or so of the Quad 
is that it's begun to stabilise its program of work. There was a period a couple of years ago where it was rapidly expanding its agenda, and I feel that over the past few months, it has begun to try to consolidate, uh, to develop the work that has been initiated to actually achieve tangible results on the work that it has promised to achieve results on and to just keep uh, continuing to develop. So I don't anticipate any major new announcements. There may be because all the major new announcements have always been surprises. But I think the Quad has a lot on its plate already. And so if I was advising the people who are running the Quad, my advice would be, crack on and, and develop the lines of effort that are already underway and achieve effects on them. And I think there's positive signs that, that they are moving down the road on all of them. And the particular equities the, the uh, Indians have maybe in the fact that it's India or you're looking more to the Indian Ocean region, I don't know, we might see a bit more focus on that. I always, you know, always ponder whether... India's a bit more focused on trying to talk about counterterrorism issues because of its its its, uh, its own situation. Um, I think the Quad's usually a bit reticent to go too far down that sort of line, isn't it? But anything we might think that's going to give it a bit more of an Indian flavour. That's time. right. So, so my sense again is that there's probably less latitude for the host of a Quad summit than there is for the host, for example, of a G20. Right. So when India was chairing the G20, there was a lot of scope for India to set the agenda, to set the program of work. The Quad really is a consensus organisation, or I shouldn't say organisation. The Quad really is a consensus grouping where a lot of its work has already been set. And as I said, it's therefore a matter of developing existing lines of effort rather than the chair or the host coming up with its own agenda for any given meeting. That's not to say it won't. And as you said, there are some lines of effort that India is probably particularly interested in. One, for example, is maritime security. And that's one that that I think is, is good news that India is especially interested in that because India has traditionally been a little bit more reluctant to engage with foreign partners on hard security issues. So the fact that it is willing to discuss openly and commit openly to action on maritime security is a, is a good sign. And I would hope we see further developments on things like the Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative, IPMDA of the Quad, and initiatives like that. Great. IPMDA. The, uh, the acronyms just roll off the tongue, don't they? Well, in terms of the, <laughs> in terms of the photo shoot, I don't know if they're gonna, how, how they're going to top the, um, the chariot ride with uh, uh, Prime Minister Albanese and Prime Minister Modi, but uh, I'm sure they'll come up with something. Um, obviously, the Quad's been around for a little while now and it's new in its latest iteration. Um, do you have any sort of sense on how it's evolved in that time and where it might be heading? Yeah, it's, it's amazing how it has evolved. Uh, since it was re-established in 2017. At that time, it was just official from the four countries meeting behind closed doors on the margins of other formal meetings. And there was no sense that it would continue, certainly not commit to any action. But in 2021, with the advent of summit meetings, leaders meetings of the Quad, and the advent of a written down commitment to certain policy outcomes, it radically, I think, changed its character for the better. 
And since then, as I said, it's been only expanding on its agenda. Uh, so, so I think the change has thus far been stuck and a real indicator of political will on the part of all four countries, but most notably India, right? Again, because India had been traditionally somewhat reluctant to engage or to commit or to bind its hands on some of these policy initiatives. And so the shift in Indian political will as manifested in its commitments to the Quad has been notable. And I might add, that's the sort of example that I always draw upon, the sort of evidence that I draw upon of the malleability or the flexibility in what the Quad can do in what the political climate in the four countries will allow it to do. We often have debates about what the Quad can and cannot do, and in my mind, you only need to look at the rapid evolution of the Quad in the past, especially two to three years, to see that, in essence, it has a lot of flexibility to, to, to evolve pretty drastically. I mean, just on that point about its potential and how far you can push the <clears throat> format. And it, it strikes me that the quad is one of those ones that does sort of bring out some polar, um, you know, some, some quite different views, often at the two extremes. Um, uh, some people will openly, including in Canberra, will openly sort of say that they're a, uh, a quad sceptic and the scepticism usually derives from their view of, of how much India will lean into the, mm. the format. And it mm. almost sort of drives the people that take the quad seriously and see it worth investing in to sort of, I've heard some people even refer to themselves as quad boosters uh, when they actually might be putting forward a fairly moderate position. But that 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 tendency for it to be, uh, the Brits would call it a Marmite response. You either love it or you hate it. I guess it's a Vegemite <laughs> response if we're in Australia. But um, that, that tendency to get that, that polar opposite opinion yeah. on the quad. Did you come across that? Do you think it's something we need to be cautious of? Any 100%. 100%. And, and I would also caution that that is not inconsistent with Chinese messaging and narratives on the Quad, right? Because Chinese messaging and narratives on the Quad are, on the one hand, that it will dissipate like sea foam, that it's meaningless and, and, and transient, or on the other hand, that it is an Asian NATO, that is Cold War splittist, or not, not splittist, divisive thinking. Of course, the reality is in between. And of course, uh, there are actors like China, who deliberately employ those tropes of the Quad either being meaningless or completely threatening, instrumentally. They deploy them instrumentally. If you were an objective analyst, you would see that the Quad is a grouping of four like-minded states that are beginning, still in the pretty early stages, but beginning to provide for the Indo-Pacific what they consider to be a positive vision for the region to provide international public goods so that the region can meet the challenges that it faces and that the existing architecture is ill-equipped to meet. So the existing architecture of the US alliance system or other organisations across the region cannot deal with things like transnational epidemics, climate change, or critical and emerging technologies, you need a mini-lateral grouping of capable and resolute states to tackle these issues. And I think that's what the Quad is trying to do. Again, it's early days in the grand scheme of things. It's been a couple of years 
since the Quad is committed to any policy action. So expectations need to be somewhat measured, right? You can't expect it to, with a big bang, completely remake the region, and nor would the region welcome that. So for those who would describe themselves as Quad boosters, I think the, the reasonable expectation is that it as I said at the outset, continues to develop the lines of effort that it is committed to uh, and and hopefully start to deliver on those tangible benefits. And again, with IPMDA, it has begun to deliver on those tangible benefits. Uh, and so so there is a sense that, that optimism is, is warranted as long as expectations are reasonable. Uh, that's a nice point that you made about the... Um uh, the debate about the quad that when it, when it moves into those polar territory, it, it can uh, reflect some of the, uh, the, the the Chinese propaganda. Um, we'll have to direct um, Aspie's attention to uh, uh, disinformation <laughs> around the quad. We've certainly looked at disinformation around orcas, but that's a good one to look at. Um, just quickly, you were talking about it, it being part of a, a larger framework of um, uh, what's sometimes termed minilaterals in, in mm. the region. Mm. Did you see, um, and, and India, of course, is, is, is in a whole range of formats, many of which you would, you would never see Australia in, like um, uh, you know, the BRICS, the Shanghai Corporation Organization. It's got um, minilateral formats that are looking westwards as well as, uh, um, as, as, well as towards the Indo-Pacific. But um, do you see any uh, complementarity or sort of division of labor emerging? I mean, from Australia's perspective, it's got the trilateral with Japan and the US as well as the Quad. How do these things sort of link together? Absolutely. The whole point of these mini-laterals is that they are designed to tackle specific issues. They're not designed like old post-war universal organisations to be some sort of uh, holistic governance architecture. They're designed to tackle specific issues. So the Quad, for example, as I said, is designed to... Uh, tackle uh, a range of pretty specific transnational policy challenges, whereas other groupings like I2U2, which India is a part of, or SCO or the BRICS have different missions, and I might add, different levels of political commitment from each of their members. So people will often, for example, say... we we can't we can't get a we can't get a bead on India. We can't understand its strategic direction because on the one hand it is a member of the Quad, but also a member of BRICS or whatever the BRICS is now called and SEO. But that's but that's a very superficial understanding of a country's international partnerships and obligations. Because when you actually interrogate what are India's commitments to the BRICS and SEO, what is the range of overlapping strategic interests with those partners, and juxtapose that with India's commitments to and overlapping interests with its quad partners, it's chalk and cheese. Right. Completely different. And so and that and that is the essence of minilaterals, right? They 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 are not meant to be a one size fits all or a complete answer to every foreign obligation. They are meant to tackle specific issues. And I think when you look at India's commitment to the Quad, the final point I would make is it's not just the Quad as a formal grouping that meets at summit level and at foreign minister's level. It is also India's bilateral and trilateral relationships with 
other quad members outside the formal meetings of the quad that show that India is really more deeply aligned with quad members, Australia, Japan and the US, than it is with the members of the BRICS of the SEO. So the quad is a grouping that meets formally, periodically, but it's also an informal, what I would call the informal quad, a group of countries that meet sometimes not always all four together or sometimes all four together outside a formal quad meeting, but more often bilaterally or trilaterally to uh, build habits of cooperation on a range of issues, including military cooperation. And that builds the familiarity and the comfort level between India and its partners that will allow it ultimately to actually execute on these policy commitments. I think we're we're almost out of time, but I am just going to try and squeeze one more in, um, which is obviously one of the areas the Quad hasn't at least uh, publicly focused on is is the security dimension, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't. It's not a meeting of defence ministers, for instance. Um, some people, including some some of my colleagues here at ASPE, have said that that's uh, um, that's an area that the Quad should be more um, conspicuously uh, paying attention to, and that, that actually the Quad speaking out some of these issues would send. Uh, a powerful signal to the region. Do, do you have any view on, I mean, presumably behind closed doors, they are talking about issues like China, but um, do you have any view about how the Quad should play this difficult area around security? Yeah, there's a lot to say on that. First of all, let me just make one point of clarification. I'm sure they are talking about China behind closed doors, but not only as a security issue, right? The whole point of the Quad is to provide international public goods and to provide uh part of the lattice work that allows countries to work together in the region and they would be talking about uh posing an alternative to China's vision of the region on many issues aside from security but on security itself i think it's important also to make a distinction between military activities and the broader category of security because the quad already does several things on international security that are not military. So again, IPMDA is, I would argue, um, uh, maritime domain awareness is inextricable from security. The Quad's work on humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, HIDR, is inextricable from security, albeit non-traditional security. So when the Quad avoids security work, it's not that it avoids any security work, it's that it avoids... Uh, military cooperation, especially conventional military cooperation. And that's because, as you as you alluded to, uh, regional opinions of the Quad, that's in large part because the Quad understands that if it was to explicitly and boldly talk about military cooperation, it would alienate much of the region. It would lose legitimacy in the eyes of the region a region that is concerned about intensifying security cooperation between the US and China. And so why would the Quad uh, lose its legitimacy, lose its traction in the region and lose the viability of of the provision of its international public goods by then being associated with this sort of intensifying security cooperation? That is, those are issues for the Quad members to pursue separately. They can pursue them bilaterally, trilaterally, or even occasionally all four together with things like the Malabar exercise. 
but they are not part of the formal quad because the formal quad has set for itself a positive vision for the region that is not about security competition. And that's fine. Uh, again, we get back to the previous point about what is the purpose of a minilateral organisation or a grouping. There is no organisation for the quad. But the purpose of the quad grouping is to provide order for the region, not to provide security cooperation. That is the realm of other activities among quad members. Excellent. Well, I think that's all we've got time for. I'm sure we'll see in the statement, even if it doesn't refer to uh, the, the China C word, and maybe the other C word, coercion in there. So there's, there's, there's ways to make points maybe without being too explicit. But um, we are going to have to let you go, Arzan. We've got, to, we've got to track down Justin and uh, try and finish this conversation about deterrence because uh, we left it hanging before we started <laughs> this podcast. That's right. What is the answer? Thank you very much, Alex. It's been a great pleasure. Great. Thank you. Finally, David Rowe sits down with Jennifer Parker, the Director of Defence Policy at the Australian National University's National Security College, and Dr Malcolm Davis, Senior Analyst in Defence Strategy and Capability at ASPE. They discuss Jennifer's recent ASPE report, an Australian maritime strategy resourcing the Royal Australian Navy, which calls for an urgent expansion of the Royal Australian Navy fleet to adequately protect Australia's vast maritime interests. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I'm David Rowe, and I'm very happy to be joined today by Jennifer Parker and Dr Malcolm Davis. Jennifer is a long-serving naval officer and the Director of Defence Policy at the Australian National University's National Security College, and she is the author of a recent ASPE report on Australian maritime strategy. Dr Davis, as our audience will be well aware, is one of our senior analysts and uh, gurus on defence policy. So we're talking today about Jennifer's report. Thank you both for joining us. No, thanks, David. Great to be back here at ASPE. So, Jennifer, one of the key recommendations is an urgent expansion of the surface combatant fleet. I want to sort of work backwards to the why question about that, but perhaps we can uh, start by talking about the strategic and security environment. Our audience will be well aware of everything that's going on in the region and the globe. Uh, I'd like to ask you to explain what does that mean for the Navy? How are we rethinking the role of sea power at the moment, what it needs to do, and, and how is that a sort of context for your report? Yeah, no, thank you, David. Um, pleasure to be here and real pleasure to write this report. I guess um, when you look back through Australia's maritime strategy and you look back through the writings on it, shows maritime history, one of the things that's often lamented is this concept of sea blindness. Uh, and there's always been a view that despite the fact that Australia is an island nation, we view ourselves with a continental approach. And of course, we are an island and a continent. But that has had certain implications for the structure of our defence force and the impact on the resourcing of the Royal Australian Navy. And, you know, one of the comments that I I put in there is, you know, I say that the Royal Australian Navy has often been under-resourced and overlooked. And for a long time, despite the fact that we're a large island continent with a coastline of over 60,000 kilometres, that's kind of been okay, right? Because we've gone on this premise of you had 10 years strategic warning time to change the structure of the defence force. So you had 10 years strategic warning time to let you know if there was a likely chance of conflict in the region and respond to that. The problem is from the 2020 Defence Strategic Update and the 2023 DSR, it says we no longer have 10 years strategic warning time to plan for the right capabilities of Defence Force to deal with conflict in the region. 
So where we had always accepted that the Navy probably wasn't big enough to protect our sea lines of communication, and of course now the challenge of protecting our undersea data cables, we accepted that risk. The challenge is now with the chance of a conflict within the region, and you know the Indo-Pacific region is inherently a maritime region, we really need to have a Navy that is able to respond to that. And so that leads to questions of size, what type of ships... But more broadly, what type of maritime strategy do we need? And the the report takes the view that before we get into the discussion about this ship or that ship or this amount of VLS cells, so vertical launch system cells or this sonar, we really need to understand how do we intend to use the Navy to achieve protection of sea lines of communication? What are our key strategic interests and what does the Navy need to do? And so that's why the report really goes into a review of what is our maritime strategy? And unfortunately, it kind of comes up a bit short in terms of that hasn't really been articulated. Really, one of the starting points is that we actually need a maritime strategy before we get to anything else, okay? And we don't have that, certainly, uh, in your view, to an adequate uh, degree. Just talk a little bit more about what a strategy might look like. I mean, what's what's currently missing from our thinking, I suppose? Mm. So I think uh, it's interesting. I think to, to answer this question, I'm kind of going to go back through the, the history a little bit. So Australia has never publicly released a maritime strategy. And some people would say, well, yes, we don't necessarily have an air power strategy and we don't necessarily have a land power strategy. And the difference is, though, maritime is not just a domain for us. Maritime is actually a maritime strategy is the way we will deal with defending Australia and its interests. So some other countries like the US, uh, India, the UK, a number of other countries in the region have released maritime strategies. And what it says is these are what our core strategic interests are in the maritime domain, and this is what we intend to do to protect them. So throughout Australia's kind of, well, going back to when we first started the white papers in the 1970s, with the exception of the 87 white paper and probably the 2009 white paper, As much as some of them have mentioned the term maritime strategy, they've never really delved into what that means. Some of them have had passing comments about, well, Australia's maritime strategy is sea denial, but what does that mean for force structure? What are you trying to deny? How do you intend to do that? And so my report looks at what is a feasible maritime strategy. And the Defence Strategic Review released this year does talk about the concept that the Navy needs to be able to, not just the Navy, in fact, all capabilities that operate in the maritime domain, whether it be space, cyber, land, air power, need to be able to deliver both sea denial, sea control, power projection. But it doesn't really talk about to what end and how to do that. So my report talks to that a little bit and the fact that we need to really clearly articulate that before we start talking about what that means for a full structure. Malcolm, to you, do you share Jen's concern about, I mean, is there a sort of gap in our thinking and a sort of foundational thinking in this way? And what what would you like to see? I mean, what, what do you think that kind of strategy should look like? Yeah, look, I think Jen is, is quite correct. Uh, for many years, we haven't had to worry about these questions because you know, we've been essentially sitting in a strategic backwater where we haven't really been threatened. I mean, I Back in the the dim days of of the Dib review, where, you know, we talked about sort of escalated low level threats, which could be you know, the landing of a small number of special forces in the north. That's as far as we went. There was never any real consideration of maritime strategy and sea power and the projection of naval power north. And now we are facing a, a serious threat, particularly from a rising China. We have a rapidly growing navy. China, the PLA Navy, is the largest navy on the planet. 
rapidly catching up to the US Navy in qualitative terms in virtually every area. So we're now facing that challenge in terms of how do we deter a China from using force against us. And when you look at the Defence Strategic Review, it talks about deterrence by denial. It talks about um, impactful projection uh, of, of a focused force. All of that tends to imply, in many respects, a maritime strategy in a maritime domain of a hemisphere that is largely maritime. But where do we need to deploy our naval forces to achieve those goals? And if we're going to deploy naval forces forward within what type of forces do we need and how many of them and what about sustainment of those forces over a protracted war, do, that's the sort of things we need to think about. And suddenly we're having to answer these really difficult questions after many decades of never really having to think about that. And I think it's it's a real challenge for us. All right. Let's unpack some of these terms a bit, actually, Jen, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, back to you. I mean, sea control, sea denial. I mean, just to, just in practical terms, perhaps even paint a scenario or two if you if you feel um, bold enough to do that. But I mean, obviously, we have a, a well-informed uh, audience listening to Aspie's podcast, but um, even people like myself sometimes just have to remind ourselves of what we actually mean uh, by these things. Just talk us through... Yeah, absolutely. And for those listening that are, are big fans of Mahan or Corbett, you're going to cringe as I describe these, but but I'm always a big fan of a, a practical definition. So when we're talking about sea denial and sea control, really they exist on a, a spectrum of how much control you can provide over the ocean. So from a sea denial perspective, it is having the forces that are designed and positioned to deny the adversary's objectives. So, for example, a submarine is a classic sea denial capability, as are mines. From a sea control perspective, it's actually about reaching out further and being able to control the vicinity of your sea lines of communication, of your key points of strategic interest. Now, obviously, you can't just dominate the oceans with a uh, regional maritime power like Australia, but it's about knowing where you need to exercise that sea control and how long you need to exercise that sea control for. And the term power projection uh, really talks about how you project forces forward, and that might be land forces, that might be maritime forces. So when you come down to looking at how you achieve that, it's really important to look at, well, if you have a a strategy just around sea denial, which some of our white papers have previously recommended, notably our DSR does not recommend that, then really you've got a force that's designed around mines, designed around submarines, designed around protecting the coast. But as the DSR highlights, our strategic interests extend well beyond our coast, right? When you think about, you know, the report talks about how much fuel we have. And so the majority of Australia's fuel, I think 91%, is actually imported. So it comes from Southeast Asia. But to get to Southeast Asia in an unrefined capacity actually has to come all the way, majority of, across the Indian Ocean. So when we're talking about the ability to achieve sea control, we're talking about how could we secure that sea line of communication to a point with maritime assets that it couldn't be interfered with. And that's not necessarily having to secure the entire Indian Ocean, but for a certain period of time. So that is that is kind of the difference. And, and when you start thinking about that, that obviously changes the amount of assets you need, the type of assets you need, because you're needing to project them forward. And given how lengthy Australia's sea lines of communications are at quite a distance. 
Yeah. Um, so, okay, Malcolm, perhaps to you, um, Jen talks in the report about having a persuasive deterrence message in effect. And, and obviously, in the context of what Jen's just talking about there with sea control versus sea denial, we want that deterrence message not just to be that we uh, we can fight, you know, lustily in a, in a conflict or a crisis, but in fact, we're also sort of resistant to you know, coercion, to being uh, cut off, to having sort of economic pressures placed on us. Can you just sort of talk through, you know, what the strategy is? is there with that broader sense of deterrence? Well, deterrence is always about communicating the imposition of costs to an opponent uh, and demonstrating both the will and the capability to inflict those costs. Now, in the case of you know the likely threat of China, in coalition with our key partners and allies, such as the United States, Japan, South Korea, and, and others, we need to be able to demonstrate to Beijing that we can deny them the ability to project power against us in a way that challenges or harms our critical interests uh, and impose costs on them. And the way to do that is by having a naval capability alongside air and, and land power, as well as space and cyber capabilities that impose costs. But we can't do that if our naval capabilities are uh, lacking in, in size in terms of the number of ships or range in terms of the ability to project power across the region or survivability and firepower, the ability to actually generate costs against the opponent. So we need to have both the will to use that capability in a way that essentially does deterrence by denial, that basically prevents an opponent from, from projecting power against us, but also generate sufficient cost against the enemy. And I think uh, what really is critical here that changes our thinking deterrence by denial is that the fact that the Chinese in particular are developing in increasingly long-range counter-intervention capabilities, you know, what we call anti-access narrow denial, the ability for them to project power against us. So, you know, we talked earlier about our oh, deterrence by denial is, is right up against the coast. That doesn't deter uh, because it doesn't deny they can project power against us from much longer ranges. So we need to be able to go out and project power directly against them in a way that actually inflicts costs. Otherwise, our deterrence doesn't have credibility. Okay. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. You know, um, a lot of people will say, you know, when you're pushing to invest in defence, you're pushing to prepare for a conflict. And, and, you know, that can be true. And certainly the DSR talks about the chances of a conflict in the region. But more importantly, when you're investing in defence, you're investing in also conflict prevention. Sure. Because the whole concept of deterrence, as Malcolm talks about, is having a credible capability that makes a potential adversary think twice. And in this case, what we're talking about is thinking twice about interfering with Australia's maritime strategic interests, including our sea lines of communication. And you know, many people would say, well, that's highly unlikely. But you would also say, for the last number of years, we have had uh, experienced economic coercion, um, which is another way of kind of interfering with our trade. And so it's not unheard of to think that in a contested Indo-Pacific, Australia might find restricted sea lines of communication. And so that's why it's so important to really look at, given that the lack of warning time, as the DSR articulates, what is our strategy and what is the right structure of that fleet, which has remained pretty consistent for the last 50 years. Uh, it's a really important message um, 
to be able to project internationally, but also at home as well. I mean, we obviously uh, everything depends on um, domestic political support for uh, for the sorts of measures that we would argue are, are necessary, and, and that's I think that's a really kind of central uh, point to conveying that message. So on the on the size and the structure of the fleet, uh, Jen, uh, in terms of how we achieve this, you're talking about an expansion of the core structure of the surface uh, combatant fleet from uh, the current uh, eleven to twelve surface combatants uh, to a fleet of uh, 16 uh, to 20 ships. Um, just talk about those numbers. Mm. What, what, what what can 16 to 20 do that 11 to 12 can't? You know, what, what's your uh, rationale? So it's interesting. So, um, you know, a lot of feedback that people said, oh, you're an ex-naval officer. Of course you talk about more ships. Mm. Uh, and that is partially true. But, but when you look at it, so um, I mentioned before, you know, we've got a history of about 50 years of white papers. And every single white paper, by one, the 1987 white paper, which we talked about before, recommends 11 to 12 major surface combatants. When we're talking about major surface combatants, we're talking about frigates or destroyers with offensive and defensive capabilities that can operate across a a sphere of warfare. So anti-submarine warfare, anti-surface warfare, anti-air warfare, land strike, etc. But as much as almost every single white paper of the last 50 years has said we need 11 to 12, Almost every single capability review, certainly the ones that have been made public, has actually said we need much more than that. And then most of them are recommended between 16 and 20. And in fact, the 87 white paper said that too. And the reason is, when you think about the sheer size of Australia, and say you have 12 major service combatants, so 12 frigates and destroyers, where you apply this thing called a three to one ratio. So you expect that you will have a third in maintenance, a third in training, and a third operational. So when you think you have 12 service combatants, which is the plan um, under the, the, the current plan with the uh, Hobart class and the incoming Hunter class, obviously that plan may change with the service combatant fleet review recommendations, which have not been made public. We currently have 11. But if we had 12, you would say you'd have four in maintenance, four in training, and four operational. So ships generally operate in task groups. So you have two ships in each task group. That is not a lot when you think about the expanse of our sea lines of communication. Uh, you think about the expanse of Australia in our maritime domain. We actually have less than that because we have currently have 11 major service combatants. So the surge from 16 to 12, uh, sorry, 16 to 20, actually gives you the ability to do more concurrent operations. So it adds to those task group numbers. So for example, um, under the current construct, you would really struggle to provide protection in the vicinity of the Sunda or the Lombok Strait, uh, straits going through Indonesia, which are key uh, key trading routes for us, and have anything operating in the South China Sea. With the surge from 16 to 20, you could provide protection in the vicinity of the Sunda or the Lombok Strait if you needed to, uh, protection in the vicinity of you know Papua New Guinea or into the Pacific, and still force project into the South China Sea. And so it's really that concurrency issue, which is why most of the reviews have recommended that expansion. Now, the reason the expansion hasn't probably occurred is because of cost, right? And you've got to look at opportunity costs. And in the lead up to most of those white papers, there was that assessment of 10 years strategic warning time, which meant, hey, we can accept the risk with a smaller fleet. But I really think following the uh, DSU, so the Defence Strategic Update in 2020, and the DSR this year, and the you know the the perpetuation of this, hey, you don't have that warning time, that we can't accept that risk of having a smaller fleet. We know that it can't deal with the concurrency requirements that we need to protect our sea lines of communication. 
And you talk about um, having a, a balanced mm. uh, surface combatant fleet. Um, you know, people familiar with the DSR will uh, know that it, it talked about a, a focused uh, overall uh, military force. Um, just explain the the distinction there. Why, why do we need a balanced surface combatant fe- fleet as part of potentially a larger focused um, ADF? So thanks for that question, David. So the DSR does talk about a focus force, and it talks about focusing on a spectrum of missions that we will become very good at, and we will design our force around that. The concept of a balanced Navy isn't necessarily at odds with that, but it comes from the perspective of when you have a smaller number of major surface combatants and a smaller Navy, you can't afford to design platforms that are bespokely designed for a specific sphere of warfare. So if you're a smaller Navy, you can't afford to have 80% of your surface combatants designed for anti-submarine warfare or 80% designed for anti-air warfare. You need the fleet to be designed that they can all pretty much operate across all spheres of warfare and complement each other. So in much larger navies, they will have ships that are purely designed for anti-air warfare or purely designed for anti-submarine warfare. But when I talk about the argument that we need a balanced fleet, saying even if we expand, which we should, to 16 to 20 major service combatants, it still isn't large enough for us to have bespoke service combatants that are designed only for one sphere of warfare or biased towards a sphere of warfare. So that's how it's different to the concept of a focused force. Sure. That makes sense. Malcolm, your thoughts on that? Yeah, look, I think that's correct. Uh, And in an ideal world, we'd have the funds to go above Mm. 16 to 20, you know, go to 24 or 26, which will give us even more flexibility. But Are you a former Navy officer as well? No, I'm not a former (laughs) Navy officer. But unfortunately, the the spending pie is only so big. Uh, And whilst I think that the case for government to increase defence spending is very strong, political reality is that at the moment that's not happening. So therefore we have to fit our capability in with the resources that are available. And if we go to 16 um, to 20 uh, service combatants, uh, then I think it makes sense to actually exploit that greater number of ships, not only for a better three-to-one rule in terms of greater number of ships available for operations at any one time, uh, but also to actually accentuate the sorts of capabilities where we do need to have a strength. And having a ship that's purely focused on anti-submarine warfare probably doesn't fit our operational needs at this point in time. So in that sense, I think that the choice of the Hunter-class frigate was probably a bad move because it was designed and optimised for ASW, anti-submarine warfare, and yet we didn't have the size of the fleet that would make that a credible choice. Yeah, and and Jen, of course, in the report does uh, recommend a a reduction from nine to uh, six uh, Hunter-class ASW-focused frigates. Malcolm, you have views as well on the size of... um uh, the surface combatants that we should be looking for. Just talk us through that. Yeah, well, look, the DSR came out and talked about Tier 1 versus Tier 2, where Tier 1 was our air warfare destroyers and the hunter-class frigates. Tier 2 was this notion of a smaller, lighter ship like a corvette and would get a larger number of them. So we'd get just distributed lethality by spreading capabilities across a, a larger number of smaller vessels. My view is that that's the wrong approach. Uh, my view is that instead of having Tier 1, Tier 2, we should have Tier 1 and Tier 1 Plus, where we have the Tier 1 ships, the air warfare destroyers, the hunter-class frigates, albeit smaller number of, of those ASW-optimized vessels, and then we invest in a larger, more powerful service combatant. And I talk about you know a, a notion of an arsenal ship, uh, which was a US concept some years back that had you know hundreds of VLS cells in that would deliver long-range firepower for uh, anti-ship missile defense or land attack or maritime strike. I'm not quite going 
the extent of, of the US arsenal ship concept, but I am going to the point of saying we need a larger service combatant capability that has more firepower, greater survivability, greater numbers of sensors, greater power generation capability to work alongside the tier one vessels of the air warfare destroyers and the hunter class frigates. And so I'm not I'm not saying don't get tier two in the end. If the money's there, get tier two as well. And maybe that's an area where unmanned service vehicles can really come to the fore in that tier two area. But my concern with tier two with the corvettes and the light frigates is ships can be tracked Ships can be detected, ships can be hit and attacked. And a tier two vessel with uh, fewer missiles, fewer uh, sensors is less able to survive than a larger ship with greater numbers of vertical launch system cells or greater number of missiles and more capable sensors. Yeah. So, so perhaps, Jen, just to you for your views and uh, your thoughts on you know what we want these surface combatants to be able to do. You talk in the report about land strike and maritime strike. Just just help the audience understand a little bit about what you're picturing there. Why I mean, why do we uh, need uh, our vessels to be able to do those uh, sorts of things? What what are the sort of scenarios in which they need to do that? in order to achieve what we want the Navy to be able to achieve? Yeah, look, certainly um, what I talk about in the report is the concept of uh, a multi-purpose capability. Um, and, you know, arguably the uh, vessels coming down range in terms of the Hunter class are multi-purpose. But to Malcolm's point about strike capability, um, the impact of missiles, the range of missiles in the region and the way they would be employed has changed since the Hunter class came into conception. Mm. So as much as it is an increase in terms of strike capability on the current ANZAC class, it's not comparable to where other countries in the region are going. So with 32 uh, vertical launch system cells, uh, a number of naval strike missiles, that's not enough firepower. So the report talks about despite the fact that we do need a frigate to do anti-submarine warfare, you know, 70%, 75% of the world's submarines operate in, in our region. So it is very important. It talks about the fact that we do need a greater capability to do other things. And if you're going to come up with nine ASW Hunter frigates, it doesn't provide the fleet enough firepower for those missions that we talked about in terms of land strike, anti-air warfare, anti-surface warfare. Now, I do note that there is uh, a Batch 2 Hunter that BAE have put forward that, that looks at increasing the VLS capability. And I I, I think that's probably going to be an interesting uh, consideration for the government. Um, they're reporting that it has 85, BAU saying it has 85% commonality with the Hunter class batch one. So I think that they're the kind of roles that you would need to undertake. But I think one of the challenges that we haven't yet talked about is the DSR says quite a bit about submarines and surface combatants, um, but it also talks about the constraint of Navy in terms of the workforce. This is quite known. It was a number of years ago now where you had uh, an ANZAC class, HMS Perth, sitting on the hard sand out of the water because it couldn't be crewed. So when we're looking at what kind of future capability we, we need, we also need to look at how do we reduce the crew size of those capabilities through automation, through all sorts of different things. But not only how do we reduce the crew size, how do we actually look at the structure of the Navy to provide more people to be able to go to sea to crew those ships. And one of the things it talks about in the report is, you know, do we need to go back to looking at, do we need a Royal Australian Fleet Auxiliary? And I, I recently wrote an op-ed on this. So a Fleet Auxiliary, um, the Royal Navy has one, the US Navy has one, other navies have one, which is where your um, supply ships uh, and a number of your amphibious capabilities and your lift ships are actually provided by civilians. 
as opposed to uniform personnel. And I use the example that uh, HMAS Chules, before we purchased it, was uh, Royal Fleet Auxiliary Largs Bay. It had a crew of about 70. Um, when uh, we purchased it, it became HMAS Chules because of the way a Navy needs to operate. Its crew, uh, you know, don't quote me, about 120 to, to 140. So the, the point there, you know, not, not necessarily that a Royal Australian Fleet Auxiliary is the answer, although we did have one uh, during, during World War II. It's that how do we structurally look at the Navy to be able to crew these ships? Um, do we look at the concept of a Coast Guard, which has been put up many, many times, and um, separate out the constabulary operations from the high-end warfighting? Um, but there is, you know, we will need to look at this if we do want to surge that capability and grow the fleet. And I, I would add in uh, that it is really critical to look at uh, autonomous systems, unmanned surface vessels, because if we can develop these as a capability, and they, they are a new capability, there's a lot of challenges which Jen and I often discuss in terms of the, the problems of how do you um, operate these things without uh, them being interfered with and what's the legal aspects of, of, their, of their use. But if we can sort out the problems of these types of capabilities where you have something like the U.S. Navy Sea Hunter, which I believe at uh, recent Indo-Pacific basically sailed across the Pacific Ocean by itself, navigated all the way into Sydney Harbour and docked by itself. Yeah. You know, if you can have something like that, then suddenly you can uh, increase the size of the fleet uh, with large numbers of unmanned service vehicles that could be produced at lower cost that kind of like tick the box of Tier 2 to a degree in terms of ISR, in terms of strike, and there's no one on them. So if they hit and attack, you're not losing a crew. Uh, I think that's something to think about for the future. But if we're going to have that, that fleet structure of Tier 2 with unmanned service vehicles, Tier 1 with um, Hunter and uh, Air Warfare Destroyer, and Tier 1 Plus with something larger and more powerful, that to me would be the optimised fleet structure. And then add in that uh, Royal Fleet Auxiliary and Coast Guard capability. And it is great to see that there has been a lot of progress, um, I think, by the Royal Australian Navy in that direction. So it was great to see at Indopac recently, uh, it was Seahawk that came out. So Seahawk is about the size of a Corvette. It's an autonomous uh, US craft. Um, and it actually came out to participate in an exercise called Autonomous Warrior, which is run by the Australian Navy. And there are all sorts of uncrewed assets as part of that. So certainly is something that's being investigated, certainly something that it is invested in. Um, but, you know, to, to look at the crewing solutions for the future, it certainly is a key component of the structure of the fleet. But I would say not a replacement for a major surface combatant. It can replace certain functions and certainly in the intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance, you know, putting a towed array, for example, behind an autonomous craft would be a great way to increase your uh, undersea domain awareness. But it still doesn't change the fact that we actually need crude surface combatants. Yeah, okay, so uh, so in in addition to widening the sort of pool of uh, personnel that we can draw on by having, say, a Coast Guard or um, uh, having civilians operate those uh, non-combatant uh, surface craft, uh, you can then increasingly look at uh, automated and uncrewed uh, systems mm. as well. And we can sort of solve what is, frankly, a, a, a challenge for militaries across the world right now, isn't it? Which is um, which is finding adequate crews for for these sort of advanced. Um, uh, navies and, and air forces and so forth that they have. Yeah, absolutely. Good way to finish. Uh, guys, thanks so much. Jen, wonderful report. Malcolm, thanks for joining us to talk about it. Thank you. Thanks so much. That's all we have time for today on the Aspie podcast. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>